Now, today's May Day, so if I sound like I've got a little socialist blood pumping in my veins, you are correct. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Left Out, the Tom Hartman program, Last Week Tonight, a progressive faith sermon from Dr. Roger Ray, Backstory, and The Laura Flanders Show. So much going on in our economic lives. Left Out is our attempt at one, picking up on the issues that don't catch traction in the mainstream press, and two, to provide deeper resources for further examination. In this first episode ever of Left Out, we thought it would be appropriate to examine the origins of May Day, or International Workers' Day. Here in the U.S., however, the official holiday of labor is in early September, namely Labor Day. According to the Department of Labor's website, quote, Labor Day, the first Monday in September, is a creation of the labor movement and is dedicated to the social and economic achievement of American workers. It constitutes a yearly national tribute to the contributions workers have made in the strength, prosperity, and well-being of our country." End quote. Sounds like a redemptive story of workers celebrating their diligence and great successes in the good old U.S. of A., where if you work hard and remain optimistic, you can achieve the American dream. But I should note, or we should note, there is another holiday that isn't officially recognized in the U.S. that commemorates labor and working people, and that has a bit darker roots. In fact, the birth of Labor Day isn't as peachy and laudable as the official line would have us believe, either. In this first episode, we'll be talking to Jonah Walters. He's a researcher and writer at the magazine Jacobin, which offers socialist perspectives on politics, economics, and culture. His piece entitled Labor Day is May 1st was written in September of 2015, and it's available online if you visit jacobinmag.com. We caught up with Jonah Walters to talk to him a little about his informative piece and why it's so important to understand the history behind both of these dates. My name is Jonah Walters. I'm a writer at Jacobin Magazine, and I'm committed to building a social cultural image of the status quo in the United States and worldwide. So I think if you could start by talking a little bit about what the political climate of labor was like toward the end of the 19th century, and maybe a brief summary of the origins of Labor Day in 1894. Sure. Yeah, so at, at the end of the 19th century, the United States had one of the most militant workers' movements in the world. Strikes were commonplace in workplaces all over the country. I mean, just for one example, in Pennsylvania, coal miners waged war on their bosses. They sabotaged equipment. They refused to work. They even organized militias to defend themselves. There's a similar story in Chicago with stockyard workers in places like New York City or Patterson, New Jersey with factory workers, because this was a time of plenty, right? This was what we call the long gilded age. And this is when people whose names we still know, people like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, were assembling these huge fortunes, these big business empires, the likes of which had really never been seen before in this country. But at the same time, there were hundreds of thousands, even millions of workers who were just living in, in awful, horrific poverty. There were crowded tenement buildings in major cities. There were children dying of hunger. Workers were regularly killed or maimed by grueling and dangerous work. So the country was changing, the economy was changing, and, and so were the ways that people were thinking about themselves and who they were, the way they fit into society. Because at the same time, all this is going on, you also have these massive waves of immigration from Europe, especially from Southern and Eastern Europe, where there were already strong socialist and anarchist movements. So you've got Italian workers and Polish workers and Irish workers all sort of living together and working together. Oftentimes alongside Americans who maybe had just lost their family farms a generation before and were working for the first time in the city. And all these people are sharing ideas and coming to think about themselves, not in terms of where they come from or, or what they look like, but in terms of what they do. They're workers, they're the working class. I think it's also important to remember that at this time, the Civil War is still fresh in a lot of people's minds, too. I mean, slavery had only ended in the mid-1860s. Uh, 
And I think for a lot of people, the struggle against wage labor was understood to be part of the same great wave of revolution that had ended slave labor in this country. Black socialists like W.B. Du Bois have pointed out that it was really the great general strike of the slaves that ended slavery. When hundreds of thousands of slaves walked off their plantations in 1863 as the Union Army got closer, um, essentially crippling the plantation system by withdrawing their labor. So clearly there were these world historical changes happening um, in the way society organized work and the way workers organized themselves. And I think a lot of 19th century labor radicals saw themselves as sort of continuing that abolitionist project of emancipation by fighting against their bosses in the factories. Now, Labor Day gets established in 1894, just after the Pullman strike, which was one of the great labor battles in American history, when the president actually ordered the National Guard to shoot striking railroad workers, and many workers were killed. So actually, Grover Cleveland, who was the president at the time, he signed the holiday into law just six days after that strike was brutally broken. And I think it's clear to a lot of workers, both then and now, that the holiday is kind of a deflection. It's like a gesture that is meant to appease labor without really engaging any of its demands. I mean, just like imagine that it's an American president establishing a national holiday to honor labor, while the organizers of one of the most important labor actions in American history are still sitting in jail, and at least 30 workers are laying dead. So that's the context in which labor day gets established in this country. So expanding on the Pullman strike, maybe you could explain who Eugene V. Debs was. Why do you think it's important to include Debs in the American labor history? Yeah, so Eugene V. Debs uh, was a really important socialist leader um, in American history. He actually he ran for president as a socialist five times between uh, 1900 and 1920, I believe, including running from prison. I mean, he, he won, I believe, almost a million votes while sitting in a prison cell for organizing workers in this country. And the way he plays into this story is because he was president of the American Railway Union during the Pullman strike. Um, and just to give some background on the Pullman strike, basically the Pullman Palace Car Company was this big railroad manufacturer. They manufactured railroad cars in Chicago. In 1894, drastically cut wages and laid off a bunch of their workers in Chicago. And so 4,000 workers, a lot of whom actually lived in the company town of Pullman, Illinois, and were even more outraged because their rents were so high, they went on strike. And then more than 150,000 railroad workers in 27 states joined the strike in solidarity. They refused to switch, signal or service any trains pulling Pullman cars all over the country, which basically brought the railroad system to a halt. And suddenly, the American Railway Union, which was under the control of Eugene V. Debs, under the leadership of Eugene V. Debs, suddenly controlled the American railway system. And the strike escalated and became a really militant labor action, obviously, since we're talking about 150,000 workers on strike in 27 states. It's just, the scale of this thing is enormous. And it really pitted the railway workers under the leadership of Eugene V. Debs versus the capitalists, versus the, the big industrial titans, who were allied with the government of Grover Cleveland. And eventually Cleveland sort of, he, he invokes the executive responsibility to deliver mail. That's his excuse for breaking the strike. He says that the president has to deliver mail. Um, I need the railroads to do that. And so this strike is illegal and needs to be stopped. And so he musters this really heavily armed force of more than 14,000 U.S. Marshals, soldiers and other mercenaries. And he breaks up the strike and arrests Debs and throws a number of other workers in prison after gunning down a bunch of workers in the street. And it was this hugely polarizing moment in American labor history and just in American history more generally and forced a lot of people to sort of draw revolutionary conclusions. It forced a lot of people to look at their country and look at their government and ask uh, whose side are they on um, and are they on my side. And so it was a big radicalizing event. And, by the way, it was a radicalizing event for, for Debs himself, who read Marx for the first time while sitting in prison for his role in organizing the strike. 
In your article, you also mentioned Samuel Gompers, the head of the uh, American Federation of Labor, the AFL, at the time, and his role in subverting the causes of the labor movement. Samuel Gompers is an interesting figure in this story. I, I was speaking earlier about how Grover Cleveland establishes Labor Day, right, immediately after he breaks up the Pullman strike uh, as a sort of symbolic all and, and that was just, I, I think it was obvious to a lot of workers at the time that this was just a purely disingenuous move, that the president was you know, sort of going out of his way to, to make a gesture toward labor to distract from the, the brutality that had just occurred during the Pullman strike. So he needed an ally in the labor movement to, to help get that message across, right? And the ally he found was Samuel Gompers. And Samuel Gompers is this guy who, at the time, was the president of the American Federation of Labor. He was actually a founder of the American Federation of Labor, um, which was a coalition of skilled workers. And it was really opposed to the kinds of organizing that socialist and anarchist organizations like the IWW um, or the Knights of Labor were doing basically because they had different ways of understanding capitalism and understanding American society. Because Gompers, as a young man, he was actually a Marxist. He was a socialist. He came out of this radical cigar makers union on the Lower East Side in New York. But whereas, you know, socialists like, like Eugene Debs read Marx and decided that the mass organization of the entire working class was the only way to oppose capitalism, Gompers drew a, a different conclusion. He, he read Marx and he decided that the only way for working class organizations to survive in the United States um, was to organize themselves like businesses and, and to act like businesses. And so part of what this meant was developing long-term, in fact, permanent, friendly relationships with employers, with the bosses, and, of course, currying favor with the president and with government more generally. And this is a model, this is, this is something people call business unionism, and it's, it's very much alive today uh, in the American labor movement, um, in which you see uh, oftentimes a, a radical rank and file of union members on the ground and then a very conservative leadership that's incapable of putting forward bold proposals about the way the economy or the society should look. So Gompers actually gets on board immediately and with Grover Cleveland's Labor Day plans and supports the legislation establishing the holiday. In fact, Cleveland gives Gompers the pen he used to sign the holiday into law. And a few years later, Samuel Gompers uh, writes a glowing editorial in the New York Times celebrating Labor Day as, as a new kind of holiday, a holiday that's not about celebrating man's prowess over man, in his words which is an absurd claim because, of course, the American labor movement was all about contesting the very foundation of our society, the very foundation of American capitalism. And instead, the Gompers frames the holiday as a holiday of reconciliation and collaboration rather than struggle. Now, jumping forward a half century later, the Eisenhower administration instituted a holiday called Law Day on May 1st. How does the creation of this holiday reflect the fear and the threat still felt by the powerful sectors in relation to labor and what May Day had come to represent. So Eisenhower establishes Law Day on May 1st, right? And this is a holiday that's meant to, to celebrate the, the rule of law and its role in shaping American life. And his choice of day is interesting, right? He chooses May 1st, which of course is, is known to millions of workers all over the world as May Day. This is the international workers' holiday, which celebrates um, the labor movement and, and the workers' movement and, and the dream of a, a world and an economy organized to value human life over profit. And so it's ironic, right, that, that, that a president will try to sort of superimpose a holiday dedicated to celebrating the rule of law and the status quo on this day, which has really become an international symbol for, for resistance and for struggle. Yeah, and that's such an important point to make, I think. Namely, that there has historically been protracted attempts to undermine organized labor and workers' movements. And this even continues up to our present moment. Uh, with that said, what would you say are the key distinctions people should draw when thinking about these two different dates? I think the most important distinction between Labor Day and May Day 
has to do with what they what they commemorate or what they celebrate, right? Said simply, Labor Day commemorates reconciliation, uh, May Day celebrates struggle. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Obviously, the history of, history of Labor Day shows that the holiday was established to commemorate this moment when a workers' movement and a class of business leaders were able to reach some sort of, you know, contrived reconciliation. You had Samuel Gompers standing up there representing labor, standing next to Andrew Carnegie, standing next to President Grover Cleveland, establishing this day, which is all about labor and management working together towards some sort of, you know, great capitalist future. So very much a, a celebration of, of reconciliation and appeasement in a certain sense. Whereas May Day has always been a celebration of struggle. I mean, it, it comes out of the experience of the Haymarket massacre and the general strike in Chicago, and it celebrates the historical power of the working class and, and of the working class movement in this country at the turn of the century. Um, and it also gestures toward a better world. It gestures toward a world that's organized according to the needs and di- desires of the many instead of the profits of the few. It's really, it's a, it, it's a volatile holiday because it doesn't celebrate the past, but I think gestures toward the future. And what then is the significance of May Day not being recognized or celebrated in the United States? What does this say about our people, about our country, and our history? Yeah, I mean, it's distressing, right, that May Day isn't more widely celebrated in this country, isn't, isn't recognized by many people in this country for the important um, celebration that it is. And I think in, in some senses that speaks to the, the defeat of the American labor movement. It speaks to the fact that we're not living at the turn of the 20th century. We're not living at a time when workers are sort of front and center on the national stage, uh, making demands on our government and on our society. But I also think it's important to think about the ways that May Day does exist in, in this country and, and is celebrated. And, and for example, in, in 2006, this incredible thing happened where immigrant workers in this country responding to a piece of legislation that was being discussed in Congress sort of took May Day as their own and, and made it the day without immigrant labor. Right? It was, there was a sort of general strike of immigrant workers in this country and protesting unfair labor practices as they related to immigrants, celebrating the, the role of immigrant workers in this country and also criticizing this country for their treatment of immigrant workers. And so I think that's a powerful example of the way that May Day is, is really a living holiday. It's not a, a dead celebration, but it's something that can be used to forward struggles, even in this moment, as it was in 2006 when immigrant workers sort of seized upon the holiday as a, a symbol of their own struggle. And more recently, in 2011, um, the Occupy movement really seized onto May Day and, and held up the day as a day of action, a day of coordinated struggle across the country where people who were distressed or disenchanted with capitalism could come together to, to voice their concerns. Finally, you hear the word solidarity being thrown around by various scholars and activists. What does the word solidarity mean to you, Jonah? Right, I think that's a great question. I think too often solidarity gets conflated with, with sympathy um, or with support. And I think that Solidarity is actually a, a much richer concept and a concept that has much greater political potential than just sympathy or support. When I think about solidarity, I think about uh, stories like the Pullman strike or the Haymarket massacre and the demonstrations that came after where workers saw, you know, maybe railroad workers, they saw factory workers manufacturing railroad cars, and they said their struggle is also my struggle because we have the same enemy and we want the same things to change. Um, and so I'm going to support them. In place, I'm going to support them doing what I do. I'm going to withdraw my labor to support their withdrawal of theirs. So I think solidarity as a concept instructs us not just to look at in what ways do we sympathize with or in what ways do we support the, the actions of various you know political actors in struggle, but actually demands something more of us. It demands of us to think, okay, how do I act collectively with people in struggle 
to advance a shared vision of a better world. And I think May Day is a, is a great occasion for remembering that, for, for really taking that demand seriously and, and demonstrating solidarity with the international working class and, and with social struggles all over the world. Myra Bradwell was an amazing woman. She was born in 1831, lived through the Civil War. After her, she, she had been a school teacher, and uh, in 1855, her husband became a lawyer. He was admitted to the Chicago board, the uh, bar, excuse me, they, they moved to Chicago. He became a successful judge. And uh, she became a lawyer. Right, she had uh, four kids. Two died at an early age. She's just an amazing woman. So she became a lawyer and uh, applied for membership to the Illinois bar. And the Illinois State Supreme Court said, "No, ain't gonna happen." Now, keep in mind. At that point in time, and this, some of these may have been cleaned up a little bit by that, in part because Myra Bradwell helped rewrite the laws in 1868 about what women can own and what they can't own. But reading to you from my book, Unequal Protection, Chapter 2, The Corporate Conquest of America, this is right after, you know, now corporations have been given personhood. And African-American men have been given the right to vote. So Sarah Bradway, at, at this time, a married woman was not allowed to make out a will because she was not allowed to own land or legally control anything else worthy of willing to another person. Any property a woman brought into the marriage became her husband's at the moment of marriage and would revert to her only if he died and she did not remarry. Even then, she would get only one-third of her husband's property. And what third that was and how it could be used were determined by a male court-appointed executor who would supervise her for the rest of her life or until she remarried. When a widow died, the executor would either take the property for, him, for himself or decide to whom it would pass. The woman had no say in the matter because she had no right to write a will. Women could not sue in a court of law except under the same weak procedures allowed for the mentally ill and children supervised by men. If the man of a family household died, the executor would decide who would raise the wife's children and in what religion. She had no right to make those decisions. If the woman was poor, it was a virtual certainty that her children would be taken from her. It was impossible in the new United States of America for a married woman to have legal responsibility for her children, control her own property, buy or sell land, or even obtain an ordinary license. So anyhow, Sarah Bradwell takes this to the Supreme Court in Illinois saying, I want to be a lawyer. I'm fully qualified. I can pass the bar. And this is what the Justice, Justice Joseph P. Bradley wrote in his decision, 1873, Bradwell v. Illinois. 
The family institution is repugnant to the idea of a woman adopting a distinct and independent career from that of her husband. So firmly fixed was this sentiment in the founders of the common law that it became a maxim of of that system of jurisprudence that a woman has no legal existence separate from that of her husband, who is regarded as her head and as her representative in the social state. So, in other words, you know, women came to the court and said, hey, can we have some of that personhood? No. Women didn't get personhood until 1920. And it took an amendment to the U.S. Constitution to do it, just like giving African Americans personhood in the 1870s. took three amendments to the Constitution. But it happened much later for women. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. International Women's Day, the day that men with girlfriends wake up, see the words International Women's Day trending on Facebook and suddenly wonder, shit, do I have to do something right now? (laughs) It took place on Tuesday and around the world countries celebrated with varying degrees of success. For instance, in Russia, where it's observed as a public holiday, Vladimir Putin went on TV with a message for women. Dear women, I wholeheartedly congratulate you on International Women's Day. You have time for everything. Manage a great load of issues and stay gentle, bright, and charming. First of all, it's a little strange to hear a warm message from a man who looks like he's perpetually crushing a baby bird in his fist. And second, if he's trying to be progressive, he's failing here because managing a great load of issues while staying gentle and charming is exactly the double standard that women are constantly trying to overcome. Uh, Yes, women, it is great to see you so confident, capable and career focused. And sometimes you're not even a shrill bitch about it. It's very nice. Meanwhile, meanwhile, in Turkey, President Recep Erdogan used his Women's Day speech to make a point you might not expect. I know there will be some who will be annoyed, but for me, a woman is above all a mother. In my opinion, the greatest wrong that you can do to a woman is to restrict her to live a life where she is the victim of her economic independence. Okay, okay, okay. First, a woman is above all a mother. It's not even appropriate to say on Mother's Day. 
And also, economic independence is far from the greatest wrong you can do to a woman. There is a list that runs from genital mutilation through Nancy Myers movies that you need to get through first. As for China, a shopping mall there offered discounts in honor of Women's Day, but only to good-looking women after their facial appearances were scored by a face scanner. And I'll say this, it's not often you hear a news story that appears to have taken place simultaneously in the distant future and the distant past. <laughs> but, but it is amazing that somewhere in China, a TJ Maxx manager will have uttered the phrase, sorry, the robot doesn't want to fuck you, those Capri pants are full price. <laughs> And at this point, you will be glad to know that here in the U.S., women marked their own day. For instance, Fox News' Greta Van Susteren delivered a commentary in honor of the event. And let me just tell you in advance, if you think you know where this is going, you are wrong. The Taliban won't let women listen to music, go to school, or leave the house without being covered head to toe in a burqa. Women around the world living under Sharia law endure the unthinkable simply for being women. Which brings me to this. On this International Women's Day Eve, It'd be a good time for us women to recognize that American men, let's give American men a shout out. <laughs> yes, Greta Van Susteren marked International Women's Day with a shout out to American men for being better than the Taliban. <laughs> I, I didn't even know, I didn't even know this was possible, but, but I'm pretty sure she just leaned out. And, and she wasn't even done. Things aren't perfect. For instance, we still don't have equal pay for equal work. But American men are by far, very by far, the best men on the planet. And we American women, we may not say it, but we know that. And American men deserve to hear that from us. You know, there may be no more fitting tribute to the state of women internationally than someone giving men credit for doing basically nothing. We continue to vote against our own best interest. Corporate profits have trumped our obvious concern for preserving our environment. Though Mike Ken and Appalachia wanted to defend their coal mining jobs, the coal companies have managed decade after decade to make those coal mining jobs worse. There is not now, as of this year, a single union miner in the state of Kentucky. Labor unions are gone in the coal industry in Kentucky. Now, today's May Day, so if I sound like I've got a little socialist blood pumping in my veins, you are correct. May Day is a worker's holiday in most of the world, but not here in the USA where our government has specifically worked hard to keep May Day from becoming a recognized holiday. President Eisenhower tried to associate it with communists and named May 1st Law Day, Constitution Day. This is the day that we defy the rights of workers. 
as a refutation of the godless and lawlessness of organized labor and their socialist and communist ties. Along with many other industries, the mines have managed to break the unions, cut out pensions, health benefits, lowered salaries, and now, in my native Kentucky, they are considering importing miners from Kazakhstan as guest workers because they're used to being abused. A few years ago, when 29 people died in a mining accident in West Virginia, there was finally a substantive investigation that revealed that more than 50 people had died due to deliberate safety violations in the company managed by Donald Blankenship. When Blankenship was made aware that their mining pollution had had fouled the water of the entire region, he responded to that news by having his company build a private water source for his house without doing anything to address the poison in the rest of the water system. He told a reporter at the time, I don't care what you people say about me because Don Blankenship will go to his grave with more money than any of you. When he was finally forced to resign from the Massey Energy Company, he gave himself a $12 million golden parachute. I don't know if it even that could have happened, if he could have been forced out of Massey, if coal prices hadn't begun to exceed the price of natural gas. But at least Blankenship has been put on trial and been found guilty of intentionally. These, these uh, safety violations were not simple accidents of oversight. They purposefully put people in the mines to call and warn people when inspectors were coming. Our inspection checks and balances absolutely were defeated in the mining industry, and that's how 50 people lost their lives. So Blankenship has been sentenced to six years in prison, which he's appealing, maybe he'll go, uh, and he's been fined, get this, $250,000. His last paycheck was $12 million, not to mention the millions and millions before. So he's been fined a quarter of a million dollars out of all the millions that he's been paid and may uh, have a prison sentence of six years for creating the circumstances that resulted in 50 deaths and poisoning the water supply of hundreds of thousands of people. Now, imagine if some Muslim terrorist had attacked West Virginia, killed 50 people and poisoned the water supply, how would we have responded? I mean, really, what would we have done? So you see, when crimes of this magnitude are done by a group of people that we can label terrorists, we are literally willing to go to war. When, however, it is done in the name of business, when safety violations are committed to cut costs, even when you know it's going to kill people, when when environmental corners are cut to make a bigger profit, to pay a CEO multi-million dollar bonuses, we can hardly muster the moral outrage to discuss it. And there has been more in the media about Jessica Simpson gaining weight than there has been about the crimes of, of the coal industry. The corporate bosses in the energy field, if I may quote Jim Hightower twice in one sermon, they all think that they're the top dogs, and they think we're all fireplugs. They truly don't see any moral problem with treating us in this way. And we Americans, especially religious people, especially Christians, 
have been taught to simply accept this kind of treatment without question, as if somehow exploitative capitalism, reserving almost all of our nation's resources to a tiny fraction of the population, was the will of a benevolent God. I don't want to get lost in derogatory accounts of corporate individuals, because the real issue here is that we have a systemic problem in our country that consistently puts profit over the environment. We are being led to believe that we cannot have both a thriving economy and a healthy environment. There is not a shortage of resources in America. There's not a shortage of food. There's not even a shortage of housing. There are more empty, repossessed houses than there are homeless people in the United States of America. We do not have shortages except of morality. We have enough for everyone to lead a decent life if we could only choose to do it. You can feel the frustration in the quote we used as our wisdom lesson today from Gus Spleth, Speth, who said, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change, and I thought that 30 years of good science could address those problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with that, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. The spiritual communities in our nation, our churches, our synagogues, our mosques, are the places where we must teach the morality of a well-reasoned relationship between the economy and the environment. Capitalism doesn't have to be evil, but unbridled capitalism is not morally different from cannibalism. There is a way to regulate the economy to serve the majority of the population and not just the few who have inherited a top position. It is happening in other nations, so you know that it can happen here. And this has been part of my frustration about the uh, balance between practical progressive values and excessive idealism. The excessive idealism of Bernie Sanders is simply pointing to what is being done in Western Europe, in other developed countries. It's not that it can't be done. It's being done and has been being done for 30 and 40 years. You visit Copenhagen in, in Denmark and you go to their city museum, they have a section of the museum dedicated to the memory of poverty. They've got a section of the museum to, to take their school children through to show them what it was like in Denmark when there were homeless shelters and soup kitchens because they haven't seen one physically during their lifetimes. So you ask yourselves, why do they have such effective high-speed uh, passenger trains in England, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, even in Russia, in China? And around here, we only have trains in a few population centers, and they don't work very well. Our nation was at one time on the cutting edge of train travel. We were the world leaders in establishing a network of railways and passenger trains that in many ways, I mean, the United States is a big, big country, and it was not one country before trains. It was trains that actually united this continent into a single nation. But the manufacture of cars and trucks became such a major economic interest that the auto and trucking industry literally bought up railroads and advocated for shutting down lines. 
We are tearing up train tracks to make hiking trails in the United States when we need to be laying more track. So we hear loud objections to subsidizing Amtrak as if our nation's interstates and state and municipal roads just appear, as if we were not subsidizing the transportation industry in the building of all of that infrastructure. And one semi-trailer truck rolling down the road does more damage to an interstate highway than 400,000 automobiles. If we got those trucks onto rail and got them off of our interstates, our interstate cost would go to almost nothing. They would be almost nothing to maintain compared to what we spend on it now. Freight can be moved on rail for one-fourth of what it costs to move the same goods in a semi-trailer truck. And that is without even estimating the increased danger of having so many trucks on our roads or estimating the cost of road construction and repair. But when you think about the environmental impact and the depletion of oil reserves in the world, it becomes insane. We could save billions of dollars and literally add centuries to our uh natural oil supply while saving the planet and saving tens of thousands of lives and roadway accidents if only we could break the lobbying power of the auto and truck industry to return passenger and freight rail to the United States. Our inefficient, expensive, and dangerous addiction to automobiles and trucks is not because science has failed to give us an alternative. It's because capitalism and political donations have become more powerful than logic and morality. And that, men and women, is where we come in. Do not accept the status quo as being a necessary precedent for the future. Do not accept the transfer of wealth into the hands of the few. Do not passively accept the spoiling of the environment and the impoverishment of our children and grandchildren. Vote, speak, write, work, sacrifice, because the modern world is still waiting to be born. One hundred years ago, this May, Congress passed a law designating the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day. Four years earlier, West Virginia had become the first state to declare an official Mother's Day. Why West Virginia? Because that was the home state of Anna Jarvis, the mother, if you will, of Mother's Day. Her story is both little known and tragic meaning that it's right up the alley of our friend and fellow history podcaster, Nate DeMeo. Here's Nate. Anna Jarvis loved her mother. And because she loved her mother so much, mothers around the world get flowers and cards and candy and hugs from their kids every May, which must have Anna Jarvis spinning in her grave. She was born in 1864 in West Virginia to a woman whose name was also Anna Jarvis. And her mother, Anna Maria, to her daughters, Anna Marie, was a remarkable woman. 
The elder Anna was a feminist and a progressive and a bit of a socialist before any of those words meant anything. In Virginia, in the middle of the 19th century, back before the phrase West Virginia meant anything, she traveled throughout Appalachia, organizing women's groups, teaching them about basic health, and how to demand workers' rights after teaching them what those rights were in the first place. During the Civil War, she brought women together to tend to sick and wounded soldiers, regardless of whether they wore blue or gray. After the war, with her baby Anna in tow, she held meetings of mothers on both sides in these proto-group therapy sessions, finding closure through shared grieving kind of things. And she promoted something called Mother's Work Day. This wasn't mother apostrophe S, so not your mother, but mothers, S apostrophe, mothers plural, a collective of mothers. It was a radical idea. Let's take a day, and it would be a day of demonstrations and political consciousness raising, not of flowers or spa gift certificates. Let's take a day and recognize that what mothers do is work. And let's organize those workers the same way that people were starting to do at mines and mills and factories. This was the work of her life. And when she died in 1905, her life became the work of her daughter's life. Anna Marie, the younger Jarvis, was 29 years old and single, with no child of her own. She was devastated by her mother's death. And at her funeral, she handed out hundreds of carnations, one to each of the mothers in the congregation. She had picked up the torch of her own mother's cause and wouldn't put it down for the rest of her life. She delivered speeches. She published pamphlets. She wrote to governors and newspaper editors, senators, mayors, anyone in power, all in a campaign to get the government to recognize Mother's Day. And she succeeded and failed at the same time. People love the idea of a Mother's Day because people love their mothers. And importantly, people love the story of Anna Jarvis loving her own mother. It was a national holiday by 1914. And Jarvis kept going, talking about her mother and Mother's Day all over the world. And for people all over the world, maybe wondering why they'd grown apart from their own mothers, maybe wishing their own children would thank them once in a while. For people all over the world, Anna Jarvis became the platonic ideal of the devoted daughter. And they wrote to her. So many wrote to her to thank her, to unload about their mother-child relationships, that she had to buy a second house next door in which to store her correspondence. Mother's Day would roll around every year, and Anna Jarvis, a woman with no child of her own, would get flowers by the score, heart-shaped boxes of candy by the carload, which made Anna Jarvis furious. The holiday, designed to continue her mother's lifetime of effort working towards social justice and collective action, had gone commercial. Anna had thanked her mother by devoting her life to building a kind of living memorial. And it felt like all she'd accomplished was making it easy for people to go and thank theirs with a prepackaged sentiment in a penny greeting card. And so she railed against it for the rest of her life, spending all of her modest savings on campaigns against the commercialization of Mother's Day, filing lawsuits to stop celebrations, condemning confectioners, fighting florists. But the candy kept coming. And the flowers didn't stop. And when she died, penniless and blind, in a state sanatorium in Pennsylvania in 1948, her room was filled with Mother's Day cards. That's Nate DeMeo, a reporter out in Los Angeles. You can listen to more of his strange and wonderful accounts of American history at the memorypalace.us. We'll link to it from our own site, backstoryradio.org. Wow, 
I, I think we can just end our show and present that as American history in a nutshell. Workers, commercialization versus the individual, and the notion that mother's work drops out mothers collectively and, you know, the daughter's devotion to mother, the individual, you know, reigns supreme. That, too, is another theme in, in American yeah. history. Can you rewrite history? Can you bury the past? Will you suffer the truth or deny it from the inside? Can you rewrite history? Will you try to play God? You could master desire, but you know you can't keep up the Workers shouldn't strike and go out and starve, but strike and remain in and take possession, said Lucy Parsons, lifelong partner of Albert Parsons, one of the American labor leaders most associated with the founding of the American May Day tradition. Lucy Parsons was of Mexican-American, African-American, and Native American descent. She was born into slavery, and she was an intersectional thinker and activist a century before the term was coined. Her work after emancipation led her directly into conflict with the Ku Klux Klan and into a lifelong partnership with radical typographer and organizer Albert Parsons. Lucy never ceased advocating for racial, gender, and labor justice all at once, and she's part of the movement that won us the eight-hour day. Parsons' husband, Albert, was one of the orators in Chicago who attracted thousands to a rally near Haymarket Square in 1886 on behalf of worker rights. After police charged the crowd and a stick of dynamite was thrown, he was one of those arrested and later hanged. Lucy it was who led the campaign to exonerate the Haymarket martyrs, and then she carried on their work, leading poor women to rich neighborhoods to confront the rich on their doorsteps, challenging politicians at public meetings, and marching on picket lines. She was the only woman of color and one of only two women delegates, the other being Mother Jones, among the 200 men at the founding convention of the IWW, the militant industrial workers of the world. There she was the only woman to give a speech. She called women the slaves of slaves and urged the IWW to fight for equality and assess underpaid women at a lower rate for union fees. She also called for the use of nonviolence and occupation of the means of production. You can see her principles in the sit-down strikes of the 1930s in Detroit, the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, and the Occupy movement of today. She died in 42 in a house fire at the age of 89, but in the celebration of May Day, her work endures. Long may her intersectional spirit live. Mother's Day. It's the day we honour moms, as opposed to every other day when we look at our phones and go, yeah, not now. <laughs> Mother's Day is not just an opportunity to do something for your mom, 
It's an opportunity for businesses to be the thing that you do for them. J.C. Penney believes mom deserves to get everything she wants. The J.C. Penney Mother's Day sale. Baskin Robbins Mother's Day cake. Pick one up today. For Mother's Day, personalize your M&Ms on mymms.com. Welcome to Hooters. Right this way. Moms rock. Bring yours to Hooters on Mother's Day and she'll eat free. Perfect. What, what better way to honor the woman who gave you life than taking her to Hooters? <laughs> Mom, I just want to thank you for making me the man I am today. A man who takes his mother to a Hooters on Mother's Day. <laughs> By the way, I don't have to pay for you, so order me some wings. <laughs> e even America's national pastime wants to publicly acknowledge mothers. Hey Mets fans, come spend Mother's Day at City Field on Sunday, May 11th. Every mom in attendance is going to receive this Mets t-shirt. On Sunday, May 11th, make sure your mom receives this Dodgers Mother's Day clutch. Celebrate Mother's Day with the home team. The first 10,000 women get a raised flower pot. It's the perfect gift for the mom who enjoys the three B's. Baseball, botany, and being disappointed with her Mother's Day gift. In America, there is nothing we wouldn't do for moms apart from one major thing. According to the United Nations, we and Papua New Guinea are the only countries in the world that do not provide any paid time off for new mothers. Just us and Papua New Guinea. That's as unlikely a pairing as Sofia Vergara and Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> Separately, great. But if it's just the two of them with no one else, it makes you feel like one of them has taken her eye off the ball. <laughs> Reese. In... In the U.S., here in the U.S., federal law grants workers just 12 weeks of unpaid leave, and there are some stark limits on that. You have to work for a company with 50 or more employees. You have to have been there for over a year. Um, you have to be a full-time salaried employee, so if you're a freelance or contract or something like that, um, it doesn't apply to you. And what that means is that 40% of workers are not covered by the federal law. So if a worker with no paid leave goes into labor at work, she better hope it's on her lunch hour and that her co-workers don't mind if the break room gets a bit messy. <laughs> and, and this is not to say that women don't take leave. They just have to get very creative about doing it. What we have right now, women do take maternity leave. It is oftentimes unpaid, um, and it is through a patchwork system where they use up their vacation time, they use up their sick days. One woman I talked to put her maternity leave essentially on her credit cards. Sure, that sounds bad, but on the plus side, think of all the points she earned towards vacation she can't now take because she has a fucking baby. <laughs> this is not how it's supposed to work. Mothers shouldn't have to stitch together time to recover from childbirth the, the same way that we plan four-day weekends in Atlantic City. Oh, I'll take a vacation day Thursday, call out sick Friday, hit the slot Saturday, win big Sunday, and I'll never go back, baby! Woo! <laughs> and, and look, and look, there are women who want to get back to work as soon as they can, and that's obviously fine. But for many women, the current situation forces them to return well before they want to, like this new mother. Right now I'm using the family medical leave um, for my time. It's not paid, and it'll guarantee me my position back only for 12 weeks. I see myself probably maybe like a month. I, that's, I, I don't see myself taking longer than that. I don't know how I could take longer than that. Um, so, probably like a month. That 
is a woman who deserves real gratitude in the form of a Tampa Bay Rays flower pot. <laughs> just to help her and the baby. And, and that's if your pregnancy goes according to plan. If a baby's born prematurely, parents can be forced to make some truly heart-wrenching choices. Like Selena Allen, whose baby was six weeks premature and who knew that she could only afford to take four weeks off in total. We decided the best thing we could do is to spend the one month with Connor when he's home with us. I gave birth on Wednesday and on Monday I went back to work. It was like a piece of me got left in that hospital and now I had to pretend that I'm okay. Okay, that's terrible. Although I will say you have definitely got everyone's bullshit what I did over the weekend story beat. Oh, oh, really Carol? Skydiving? That's interesting. I dropped a baby from my innards and I was forced to leave it right there in the hospital for financial reasons. But go ahead, tell me what you had for brunch the next day. You had waffles? You're incredible, Carol. That's a great story. And, and look, I, I don't mean to suggest that this is an issue that only mothers should have to think about. Family leave should be thought of as an option for both parents, which will take some cultural adjustment. Look at Major League Baseball, which offers all of three days off to players who become fathers. But when one of them, the Mets' Daniel Murphy, actually took it, this happened. This week, sports radio skewered him for missing the first two games of the season for his son's birth. You get your ass back to your team when you play baseball. That's my take on it. What? what you, there's nothing you can do anyway. You're not breastfeeding the kid. I always said C-section before the season starts. I need to be. I need to be at opening day. Oh. Good luck selling that to your wife. Uh, listen, babe, I know I play 162 games in a season, but I can't miss a single one, so let's cut that thing out of your belly so I can wear my baggy pyjamas and swing a cone of wood to make a ball go far. <laughs> so, so why do we have this system in the United States? Well, for a start, employers tend to fear any sort of mandate, but when it comes to family leave, any fears do tend to be overblown. Look at the way that lawmakers discussed our current 12 weeks of unpaid leave system back when it was proposed in 1993. I want to make sure that all of you who will vote for this have no illusions. This bill will cost jobs. Today, America's businesses are already saddled with too many suffocating regulatory burdens. Now is not the time to shove restrictive federal mandates down the throats of American businesses and American families. This bill is unfair, anti-business, anti-growth, invasive, deathly expensive. I say this to the House, if we allow new mothers to take time off work, businesses shall crumble, our cities shall burn, and hungry wolves shall roam our streets. I'm not anti-mom, I'm anti-wolf. That's all I'm saying. No to wolves. No to the wolves. Think about the wolves. Now, that, that bill obviously passed, and a 2012 survey found few work sites reported negative effects of complying with the law. So we thought the bill would kill us, but instead, we just got used to having it around, like an irregular mole or a new stepdad. <laughs> I, I don't know why I was so afraid of you, Gene. You were fine. <laughs> now, now, some people might argue, but, but that was unpaid leave. Paid leave is too onerous, but is it? Because back in 2002, California passed a plan providing six weeks of partially paid leave funded through a small payroll tax. Essentially, it was an insurance plan that would cost employers little to nothing. But all the same fear-mongering took place, and in the end, this happened. 
More than 90% of the companies there reported either positive or at worst neutral effects. Businesses seem to just make it work and, and the polling data we have when we, when we survey them, most of them say it's just not a big deal. Yeah, it seems paid maternity is a bit like having hockey on in the background at a bar. It's not hurting anyone and a couple of people are actually really into it. So, so look, in, in California, it worked and yet only two other states have followed their lead. And that may be because any legislation that specifically seeks to support women often faces vocal opposition. In fact, Minnesota recently debated a bill which expanded unpaid maternity leave and provided other workplace protections for women, which seemed like a slam dunk. After all, lawmakers love their mothers in Minnesota. Just look at these videos they made. Hi, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. Whether it's one day or all year round, frankly, we should be thanking our moms. Happy Mother's Day to all mothers in Minnesota, and thank you. And do I talk about my mom or the mother of my children? I love them both. She always said there's two sides to every story. You need to know them both before you can be wise enough to know what to do. Okay, just, just pump the brakes a bit, because <laughs> moms are like feet. The more you talk about them in public, the more everyone assumes you want to have sex with them. So, so just, just don't. Still, it's, it is, it is, we don't think too much about that. It is, it is interesting that Representative Dan Hall's mother taught him that there's two sides to every story, because you might like to know that he and every other lawmaker you just saw voted against that bill. And you can't have it both ways. You can't go on and on about how much you love mothers and then fail to support legislation that makes life easier for them. In fact, until we, until we, as a country, do something to address this. This should be the only message that we're allowed to send on Mother's Day. Mothers, we owe everything to them. They gave birth to us. They nurtured us. They made us who we are. And this Mother's Day, we have just one thing to say to all the mothers out there. Get the f*** back to work. <laughs> Seriously, get back to work now. Because unless you can personally afford to take the time off you want, we're going to need you to get your exhausted ass back to work and show us that can-do attitude that moms are famous for. We do anything for our moms. Up to, but not including, paying them to stay home for a while after pushing a human being out of their body. But we do want to say thank you. And what better way to thank us for thanking you than maybe turning up on time once in a while? We appreciate you, moms. That's why we're happy to allow you to bring that weird donut cushion to work, just so long as you promise not to tell us what it's for. And if you need to find a place to pump breast milk, well, no problem. Either use the break room, or even better, why not get some fresh air? You'll be more comfortable out there. It'll be like a picnic. And moms, you love picnics. The important thing is that you come back to work when you're ready, or when you're not ready or even when your placenta is still technically inside you. Oopsie, clean up on aisle seven. Look at you, super mom, taking care of everyone. Because remember, not only can you balance work and family, you have to. And that's why this Mother's Day, we know you'll be grateful, moms, because you understand that even though 183 other countries do more for you, we do as much as we feel we can right now. What we're saying is, you deserve the very best, moms. You're just not gonna get it. Happy Mother's Day.
We just heard clips featuring Left Out. That's a new podcast from the same people who bring us Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf and everything going on at democracyatwork.info. They talked about the living holiday of May Day. Tom Hartman spoke about Myra Bradwell, America's first female lawyer. Last week tonight had a brief rundown on this year's International Women's Day. Dr. Roger Ray spoke in his May Day sermon about profit versus the environment. Backstory featured a story from Nate DeMeo about the origin of Mother's Day. Laura Flanders told us about Lucy Parsons, who helped inspire May Day. And finally, John Oliver on Last Week Tonight highlighted the enormous disparity between our praise for our mothers and what we're actually willing to do for them. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. My name is David, and uh, I live in Tennessee. And as a red state progressive, uh, I'd like to say to all the people who strongly support Bernie Sanders, uh, like I do, uh, that I'd like to suggest that if you really don't want to vote for Hillary when the election rolls around, that you go and vote and write in Bernie. And then while you're there, vote for the most progressive possible down-ballot candidates that there are available. And if finding out who those people are or just going to do that seems like too much trouble uh, or not potentially rewarding enough for you to, to go to that much trouble, then how much do you really care, okay? Uh, I live in a state that always goes Republican in recent presidential election. We have a Republican governor, Republican senators, Republican state legislature, and mostly Republican congressional representatives. If I let the unattainable ideal of what I would like to see happen prevent me from voting for the incremental improvements that are possible when I go to vote, it wouldn't even be worthwhile for me to vote at all. And if that was my attitude, I would completely deserve the plight that I'm in and that we're going to be in if we take that attitude. Anyway, whoever you support, go vote. And while you're there, vote down ballot, too. And thanks to Jay and Best of the Left, and for everybody that contributes, too. The the voicemail are uh, some of the most interesting parts of the show. Thanks, and that's it. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, mercifully, the number of calls coming in on voting strategy and uh, theories of change has uh, slowed to a trickle. So I want this to be the end of that conversation, but I just want to put a much finer point on one aspect of this conversation before we put it to bed. And instead of me talking for a while, I'm just going to let this play out in the form of three clips. One is a refresher on a message that I played in the middle of last month. This came in from a trans woman who was calling to express her opinion about how to vote and why it was important to her. So here are just the highlights of that call. Hey, Jay, this is Marty. I am a trans woman from 
Madison, Wisconsin. Generally, I agree with Elon James White uh, about a lot of things, but these this whole kind of black and white attitude about either they earn your vote or or else uh, this binary choice. I don't think you, as a trans person myself, I can't afford to do that. I can't afford to have eight more years of George W. Bush because, as a trans person, this is this isn't just some ah fuck it decision. It has an effect on my life, on my security, and to make it some macho, you either earn my vote or forget it. You can't do that in this election, especially this election cycle. You're talking about candidates that for LGBT people, especially like Ted Cruz, um, they're scary. Their positions are scary. They want basically to make me going to the bathroom illegal <laughs> because in one place, I'll get beat up and in the other place, I'll get arrested. What kind of choice is that? Okay, now secondly, I have a brand new voicemail. I'm going to play it in its entirety. It hasn't been heard before. And I want to preface it by saying that this is the only message I have heard on this topic that I think is completely intellectually consistent and actually thinks through the ramifications of, uh, of, of what this caller is advocating for and defends the point. Uh, a lot of people come to the same conclusion, but they don't take it to its logical conclusion and defend that logical conclusion, and this caller does. Hi, Jay. It's Austin from out here in Bakersfield, California. I'm wanting to weigh in here on some of the uh, the discussion as far as a method of change and how our voting goes. Uh, living out here in California, I understand that you know my vote is more than likely going to Hillary Clinton, or my state is going to Hillary Clinton as it is. I just have a severe problem with that. I'm one of the detractors that will probably end up voting for Green Party in the national election. And I have a couple of reasons why. My main issue is I have felt as if I've been bullied and cajoled into voting for Hillary Clinton by the Democratic establishment pretty much since the beginning of the primaries began. Both the, uh, the advertising and the way in which uh, the Democratic news outlets have spoken about uh, Bernie Sanders and other candidates basically disparaging them in comparison to Hillary Clinton um, has really left a real sour taste in my mouth because it doesn't really leave, for most people who don't do research, uh, further research than just the daily news, it really leaves an impression in, 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 in people's minds that Hillary Clinton is the presumptive candidate and everybody else is unrealistic, which we've heard over and over again, that Bernie Sanders is not realistic to vote uh, or is not realistic to get elected. This idea that we have to vote for the lesser of two evils even if that person, Hillary Clinton in particular, doesn't represent our ideas, it's absolute nonsense. The way that they frame, the Democratic establishment frames the election is that you either have to vote for Hillary Clinton or you're allowing a Republican to win. In my opinion, I think it's high time that Democrats, true Democrats, liberal Democrats, let a Republican win. It is time that liberals show the Democratic center, center-left, that you, they are no longer in the majority, that they are the minority, 
and that they do not get to continue leading us by the nose to whichever candidate they choose. Do you see this both on the Republican side and on the and on the Democrat side, to be honest? The establishment basically is our version of the Chinese Politburo, that they pick two candidates for us to choose from, and we just pick whichever one is the least repulsive to us. To go on with the leading by the nose, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force him to drink. And right now, what we've been seeing for the last so many years is that the Democratic establishment, the establishment in general, not even the Democratic establishment, the establishment in general, has been forcing us to drink. And by voting for their chosen candidates, we are drinking. We are choosing to drink. We need to reverse this role. We need to, as American citizens, we need to reverse this role and show that if our political parties are not going to support the candidates that we choose that represent our ideas, then those political parties will no longer be in power. So instead of us being the horse, the political parties need to be the horse. Jay, I appreciate everything you do. Love the show. Keep it up. And uh, hope that everything goes well in November. And now finally, I just heard this new clip today. Uh, I was listening to This Week in Blackness while making lunch for myself. And I just happened to hear uh, Imani Gandhi from This Week in Blackness, woman of color, gave this perspective. And I thought, yeah, she said it. I don't have to. I'll just play that. I think different things about the sort of person that is either going to abstain or going to vote third party. If you are a white man and you're talking about I'm going to vote for Trump or I'm going to abstain because out of the, the fire of that will burn in the United States will rise this progressive phoenix from the asses. Fuck you. It's not going to happen. And in the meantime, all the people who are not white men are going to suffer. If you are, for example, a young black millennial and you don't like Hillary Clinton and you think Jill Stein's your, your girl and whatever, I might, I might have a conversation with you about why third part, basically voting third party is like not voting at all. Although I understand that people want to have, want to be more included in the system and maybe we need to split up the part. I understand all of that. But if you're a black millennial living in Ohio, I might like to sit you down and have a conversation about what it would mean for Donald Trump to win your state. If you are anybody living in any solidly blue state like California, I don't give a fuck what you do. But honestly, if you are a white guy and you are out on social media or anywhere advocating for Donald Trump, as Salon.com keeps publishing this jackass, Walker Bragman or something, who literally literally made the claim that if we just let Trump win, then in 2020, shit's really going to pop off for Democrats. That has never happened. People said that in 2000. We lived through eight years of Bush, and what did we gain? A multi-billion dollar war that killed millions of Iraqis, thousands of Americans, and for what? Okay, now just a couple of points to wrap up. First of all, if you find yourself in the group of people who fear that a Clinton presidency would sap the energy out of the progressive movement, especially the more radical wing of the progressive movement currently being embodied by the Bernie Sanders campaign, then I really think that you are misreading things. Because first of all, you know, as Imani was just saying, we had eight years of George W. Bush a disastrous presidency filled with illegal wars. You know, if any presidency in living memory should have elicited a radical change, that was it. And yes, Obama certainly made himself sound like he was somewhat of a radical change, but he turned out to be an incredibly moderate Democrat. 
So first of all, the strategy of let's make things worse in the hope that that'll make things better, I think is misguided for that reason. Secondly, though, under a democratic presidency, under this moderate democratic president, We've had things like the worldwide movement against climate change, sort of spearheaded by 350.org. We have had Black Lives Matter in this country fighting for racial justice. We've had uh, Occupy Wall Street fighting for economic justice. And then we've had the whole progressive movement come together and propel Bernie Sanders to more victories than anyone gave him a chance of uh, receiving. And all of that happened under a Democratic presidency. So clearly... The progressive movement has not been sapped of its energy. People aren't just sitting back saying, oh, well, it's okay. We have a Democrat in office. We don't have to do anything. That is obviously not the case based on what has actually been happening over the last eight years. Now, secondly, to get back to the main point being made by those clips that I played, I have a friend of mine, personal friend, who actually espoused basically the same idea that we heard from Austin, that, you know what? I do think that we should rally against Hillary. I actually think that it would be better to have a Republican in office, not because he thinks that a Republican would have better policies, just the opposite. He thinks that a Republican would make things so bad that it would cause an absolutely ground-shaking revolution to happen. And aside from the fact that there's no evidence that that could or would happen, the point that I made was, well— That kind of sounds like that old quote from the Vietnam War, you know, while we had to burn down the village in order to save it. And his response was, well, you know, yeah, sort of, but hopefully we don't have to burn down the whole village, maybe just a few huts. And the key thing to remember is that those huts belong to actual people, and we know who those people are. And for the most part, they're not the same people advocating this slash-and-burn strategy of making things worse in order to make them better. White guys are not on the front lines of the terrible policies that a Republican is likely to put in place. They're just not. That's just not how things work. So it's people of color, it's women, it's members of the LGBT community, it's people in poverty, it's immigrants, it's the people who live at the intersections of, you know, some or many or all of those things. So if you are advocating a voting strategy or or an actual campaign to elect a Republican in the hopes that things get worse so that they can get better, then I think what you need to be comfortable doing is looking any one of those people in the eye, those people who are on the front lines of those policies, and be able to say that to them, yes, I am willing, as a at least marginally more privileged person than you, I am willing to gamble with your life, with your livelihood, with your safety, because the negative impacts of my plan are going to hit you first, but I think it's for the greater good. So I am willing to put you at more risk than myself to put my plan forward. And if you can say that and be comfortable with it, then and only then do I think you are on very solid, intellectually consistent ground to do anything other than fight as hard as you can to prevent someone like Donald Trump from becoming president. 
That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and especially on Facebook, setting our page to see our content first so that you will actually see it. Otherwise, the Facebook algorithm just sends it into a black hole and no one sees it. You can get all of the great quotes and clips that we put up there and share those with your networks. And then for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past our own sad stories And wonder